Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Today on Inside Appalachia, we'll meet farmer and herbalist Andrea Lay. Her solution to stress? I know I feel better if I'm having a really rough day or if I've been really stressed out this week because of things going on in the news. If I just get outside for a little bit, go for a walk, listen to the birds, hear the water, see the butterflies, smell a nice minty plant, it just uplifts you. Also in this episode, chefs share their favorite recipes using foods that grow wild in the forest, including one for chanterelle mushroom ice cream. It's almost caramely a little bit. Got that coconut flavor in there. Chanterelle hits in the back. Mm -hmm. There you go. Perfect for a hot summer day. And we'll meet 20-year-old falconer Colin Waybright. He trains birds of prey to hunt with him, even though the birds really do most of the work. Yeah, there's many times I could be I wish I could be up there flying around. Be really cool. Today's show is all about getting outside to embrace our wild side, to shed stress, and to heal. That's ahead in the next hour of Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. So we're now how many months into this pandemic? When the news gets to be too much, how have you found ways to let go of stress? Binge-watching TV shows and movies, dancing to music, even video games have really helped many of us just kind of let go of the daily grind. And in moderation, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are other ways to unwind. Today, we'll explore stories about tapping into the natural world as a way to let go of stress. And as we'll hear, there's a bounty of food and medicine that grows right here across Appalachia if you have a good guide and know how to look. We'll start with a visit to Lewis County, West Virginia, to meet Barbara Volk, who is the president of the West Virginia Herb Association. She knows a lot about the nutritional and medicinal uses for common plants that a lot of folks consider weeds. I am from the wise woman tradition, And when you're walking through the forest, especially if you walk barefoot, which I try to do as much as possible, or you're walking in the yard and you're having a relationship with those plants, you begin to understand that you're part of nature. We're not separate from nature. We are part of it. We are all connected. Oh, welcome to my weedy yard. And we're going to walk around and pick a few different things that we'll use in our salad today. And there's a lot growing right here. As you can see, I mean, a lot of people would weed this. I just leave them because I use them. That was Barbara Volk, who lives in Lewis County, West Virginia. Her story is one of 11 short videos that highlight foods that can be foraged right here in central Appalachia. There's tips on making sassafras tea, safely eating poisonous pokeweed, may apples, and more. It's part of a series by West Virginia Public Broadcasting that's been wildly popular online. It's called Edible Mountain. As Roxy Todd found out, the series producer Chuck Klein is a bit of a forest food expert himself. Chuck, this series began as a kind of passion project for you. Tell us how you first got started out in the woods and gathering things like ramps and wild mushrooms. I mean, I've always been around woodsmen. My grandfather was a woodsman. And, uh, you know, I spent months and months in the woods in northern Pennsylvania with him and learning how to hunt and pick things and whatnot. Um, But I did a story 
many years ago on a guy out of Franklin, West Virginia, who was a mushroom hunter named Paul Golan. And he was in his 80s, late 80s, and he marched me all over the mountain picking mushrooms. He had a little company there in Franklin called Hard Scrabble uh, Mushrooms, I think it was. Anyhow, I learned so much from him and became so intrigued that I really dove in and started to educate myself. So in that case, you know, you met this man and, and approached him. I admire, you know, you asking him, will you teach me? How did that conversation go? Like if somebody wanted to get started and really learn from one of the folks that's been doing this a long time, I mean, how do you even ask somebody to take you on and teach you that? It, you know, it's tough because some of the old timers, um, you know, like I naively once asked an, a neighbor in Preston County to teach me how to can. And uh, he said, his answer was, you can read, can't you? And, and now that I know how to can and preserve the harvests, I completely understand his answer because it's, everything has its own nuances and these are very in-depth recipes to do this kind of thing. And, and the same is with foraging. There's plants, there's lookalikes that can make you sick. So no matter if you're learning from an expert or not, you must have a good field guide and you must ID it at least three times in three different ways, especially when it comes to mushrooms um, or any plant that has a, a poisonous lookalike. You know, that makes me think about, so here we are in the midst of a global pandemic, and it's really put into focus a need and a desire to source more of our foods locally. But I also get the feeling that all this fever to get back in the woods could also be fairly dangerous if people, you know, don't know what they're doing, like you say. The response to Edible Mountain has been big because it, it did kind of, we uh, premiered right in the middle of March. I, I follow a lot of foraging sites and uh, forums on social networks. And I've literally have seen people holding poison hemlock and saying, is this wild carrot? And you shouldn't even be touching poison hemlock. Um, or uh, cow's parsnip is a very dangerous plant to touch as well. And I've seen several photos on social media of people touching it, saying, look at this amazing leaf. And you're like, oh my gosh, don't touch it. But yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely an uh, interest. And I, I think there should be. Um, we live in this beautiful garden and there's food all around us. Um, even here in Wheeling, I live in downtown Wheeling now, the alleyway is filled with edibles. And one of your recent videos talked about making ice cream flavored with chanterelle mushrooms. I've never tasted this and I'm a little skeptical. What does mushroom ice cream taste like? Well, the chanterelle ice cream, the chanterelles have a very fruity flavor. They're, it's almost apricotty. So when you add a little bit of sweetener with that infused milk, it's fantastic. And it's bright yellow because chanterelles have that, that really luminous, bright orange color. So I imagine it's really beautiful. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. The, the guy who did the chanterelle ice cream, William Padilla Brown, is just a genius running around the woods of Pennsylvania learning every time he goes out there and he shares this knowledge and he was just a hoot to be with. All I did was rinse these chanterelles in water from the sink um, and I'm gonna go ahead and simmer them in some milk. Just put this on medium low heat. 
um, and let this simmer. And what's gonna happen is that the chanterelle essence, the smell, the aroma of the chanterelles is gonna infuse into this milk. All right. Um, so you're gonna wanna make sure you get the full fat coconut milk can. Get that right in there. We're gonna add a little bit of this vanilla extract. And then we're gonna add some maple syrup for our sugar. All right, and then we're gonna blend this first by itself and then we're gonna add our chanterelle extract mix. I'm gonna strain out some of the milk in there and I'm gonna add just a little bit of chanterelles. It'll help give it that nice golden color. And um, now we just gotta wait for this to cool down a little bit before we put it into the ice cream machine. It's almost caramely a little bit. Got that coconut flavor in there. Chanterelle hits in the back. Mm -hmm. There you go. Perfect for a hot summer day. I want to talk a little bit about ramps. For anyone who doesn't know, ramps are wild leeks that grow in the forest throughout the country, but they grow really well here in Appalachia. And they've become really trendy in recent years. And you and I have both reported several times on the over-harvesting that is happening to ramps as a result of, you know, all these folks in DC and New York City suddenly paying top dollar for them. But I understand that there are ways to sustainably pick ramps. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, the jury's out on that. Some people just harvest the tops of the ramps and leave the bulb in. But uh, sustainability 101 is always pick one, leave three. Um, let the patch do its thing. Nature grows, you know. But don't clear cut anything. Don't, you know, go in and take everything. I'm taking out backpacks full or buckets full, uh, garbage bags full of ramps. At many of our sites, we've seen people actively removing them. It's become quite trendy and everybody wants ramps. And unfortunately for the ramp populations, we have no idea what that means. I saw them this year at uh, East End Food Co-op in Pittsburgh going for $19.99 a pound. When ramps grow, they develop from a seed and they develop much like an onion where they just kind of produce one little single wispy, almost grass-like top for a number of years. So the first thing is obvious maybe at a site like this, which is pe people should not be digging ramps unless there's a lot of them. Because you know while they're a wild onion, they're a bit unusual in the sense that they take many years to develop from seed. So typically when a seed germinates for a ramp, you're looking at maybe three to as many as seven years for it to reach anything that then starts to clone itself. And that's basically a size for harvesting. That was Eric Burkhart and Sarah Nelson, two researchers at Penn State who are trying to determine if there are long-term impacts to wild ramps due to overharvesting. Their study has been put on hold due to COVID-19, but they hope to publish results next year. Since its launch, the Edible Mountain series has been viewed thousands of times. I mean, I, you know, Roxy, I just feel so fortunate to be able to do this right now. It's a precious project to me. I love being in the woods. I love being able to hear these experts and their take on things and to be able to try to teach knowledge that's almost being lost.
Ensuring that this knowledge is passed down for the future, as well as the plants that have survived here for thousands of years, is a goal he says he feels in his bones, both as a human and as a storyteller. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. You can watch the short videos Klein made about forest foods on our website. Just search for the Edible Mountain series. They're short, only about three minutes each, and I just love the personalities and information from the videos. It makes me want to get outside and explore the forests with my kids. Ginseng, golden seal, cohosh ramps, bloodroot, valuable, well-known plants that grow wild in these mountains. Maybe you can even identify them. But many of them face threats today because of things like overharvesting, habitat loss, and climate change. It's something the people at the West Virginia Forest Farming Initiative care a lot about. The organization is teaching residents how to raise these botanicals on their own forested land as a source of income and as a way to preserve the forests. As Folkways reporter Heather Nide found out, the organizers are getting a lot of help from local experts. Ruby Daniels is committed to forest farming, cultivating plants under a forest canopy. She sees it as a way to help her community and give back to the land. By conserving like endangered plants like ginseng or blue cohosh or black cohosh, false unicorn, all those things could be repopulated in this area that has been decimated by mountaintop removal, coal mining. That's kind of how I would like to work with the community and bring, you know, some type of way people can have an income. Ruby is an agroforestry consultant at Sprouting Farms in Talcott, part of the West Virginia Forest Farming Initiative. She was born and raised in Maryland, but spent her summers at her grandmother's home in Beckley, West Virginia. It was there in her grandmother's kitchen that Ruby first started learning about native plants. I was always hanging around her and then I'd talk to her. You know, she would always say, the moon gotta be dark when you plant potatoes and onions. So that's a new moon. She was a moon planter. She planted by the moon. She just was so earthy. Her grandmother inspired her to experiment with her own concoctions, even as a young child. I was wild. I'd get like apple blossoms and just make up recipes. So I was making herbal baths before I knew that's what I was gonna be. So she just let me do and then you know I once I got older and interested I just talked to her you know it was always somebody in the black community that knew some type of remedy for something. Ruby says her grandmother taught her how to prepare the herbs for use in teas and salves to treat all kinds of ailments. When she began working on a master's degree in therapeutic herbalism she started connecting her grandmother's lessons with the science behind the folklore. Definitely the education kind of gave um support to what the old people were already doing. So it just gives you a deeper way of looking at it, you know, to figure out like, why is that good? Why do they say take black cohosh with uh, postmenopausal symptoms? Why is that good? And then with being in school, I could see, oh, it works on a receptor in the brain, for, you know, and that it turns on and off. Ruby says learning how to grow these plants through her work at Sprouting Farms is a way to honor her ancestors. She's a descendant of enslaved Africans brought to Virginia in the early 1600s. They brought with them a vast knowledge of herbal medicine, but weren't allowed to use it. In Virginia in the mid-1700s, 
enslaved people were forbidden to use herbs, a practice that was punishable by death, Ruby says. Now, when she makes teas or tinctures, she connects the science with the spirit. I look at traditional things, I look at traditional remedies, and then I also just add the new scientific stuff. I also use spirit. I listen to my my inner healer commonly. I might say, oh, this person might need peppermint. But when I really work with them, mm-hmm. another herb is calling to me. And I add that. When it all comes together, that formula makes sense for them. As part of her training in growing botanicals, Ruby is also working with the U Mountain Center in Hillsboro, West Virginia. The U, as it's known, grows popular botanicals like golden seal, ramps, and cohosh. Appalachians have been growing and selling these herbs and botanicals for generations, and the folks at the U are reviving this tradition in the 21st century. It offers seminars and hands-on training on how to cultivate these plants to build a forest farming business. And it's a good business. Mature golden seal root sells for up to $40 per pound, and demand is growing during the pandemic. Erica Marks is the used director. She says larger herbal manufacturers are looking for a stable supply chain. It's very pragmatic because it is their supply, their products depend on it. She says the herbal companies want to assure their customers that the plants are from sustainable and verifiable sources. So part of the forest farming program at the U is teaching people how to become certified growers so they get a higher price for their crop. It starts with where to plant, says Will Lewis. He's the U's forest farming coordinator. So the main thing you want to look for is a semi-mature mixed hardwood forest. So like this where you got some older trees, the older the better. Preferably dominating tree species would be sugar maple. And then as far as below, you can look for indicator plants, trilliums, um, mayapples, the rattlesnake fern, or ginseng pointer, they call it. Ginseng, golden seal, and other botanicals are calcium-loving plants. Sugar maples are an excellent source of the mineral. Sugar maples' leaves have higher calcium, so every year when those leaves break down in the soil, it's kind of like a, a calcium fertilizer. On a gentle slope just up the hill from the U's Lodge, three-inch tall golden seal plants are spaced about three feet apart. The plants start as seeds closely planted together in nursery beds. After a couple years of growth, they're transferred to the forest, usually in the fall when sufficient rain has fallen to create a moist, loamy soil. Forest farming is an investment in time. Most of these plants take several years to flower and produce seeds. Erica Marks says finding a place to grow these plants can also be an issue in a state with a lot of privately owned forest land. That is a nut we need to crack. Like Mm -hmm. how do we increase access for people who want to do this? And maybe there are leases they can work out with landowners. Um, There are some pilot programs that Appalachian Sustainable Development is working on. How do we connect people with interest with good habitat? Marks says the forest farming program at the U is still pretty new, so they get a lot of help from veteran botanical growers like Ed Daniels, no relation to Ruby Daniels. Ed is a master artist in the West Virginia Folklife Apprenticeship Program, 
And over the next year, he'll work with an apprentice, passing on the skills he's acquired over a lifetime. He and his wife, Carol, own a forest farm near Pickens, West Virginia, and produce a variety of botanical oils, tinctures, and salves that they sell online and in some local stores. Of all the botanicals Ed grows on his farm, he's most passionate about ginseng. Now in his 50s, he's been a sanger, or ginseng digger, for decades. As a young kid, I grew up in a, a poor lifestyle. Ginseng was a way for me to earn money to get my school clothes and uh, shoes and, and jeans and such. When I turned 15, I was like, boy, if I could get five or $600 at one time, I could get me a car. Ed admits that desire for a car led him to take more of the wild ginseng than he should have. He says as he got older, he saw the effects of over-harvesting. Areas where he used to find wild ginseng were depleted. To atone for the mistakes of his youth, Ed says he plants about 70,000 ginseng seeds every year. We have several different approaches here on our farm. I've got the raised beds that those roots, I put some big roots in. They're going to change because that's loose soil, but I'm going for big tops, big berries. Those are my seed producers. Now, the longevity guys that I'm going for character and medicinal, they're planted in the hard, compacted soil, and they don't get very big. Mature ginseng plants produce a tight cluster of bright red berries. After the berries ripen and fall off, the plant is left with a scar near the top of the root. Ed says the scar on a fresh root is proof the plant was harvested in season. That's important because ginseng can only be legally harvested in the fall. It's the most highly controlled botanical in West Virginia. And it's by far the most lucrative. Ed says in the current market, high-quality dried ginseng root can fetch up to $800 a pound. But he's also interested in what ginseng can do for those suffering from opioid abuse. I'm treating three guys right now in the town that I live in who have suffered and are currently battling opioid addiction. The doctors took them off, and um, they're using our CBD oil and the ginseng tinctures. Ed says the ginseng is helping the men to wean themselves off of the opioid drugs. Ginseng has been used for thousands of years in traditional Chinese medicine to treat a variety of conditions, but there's only a handful of Western studies looking at the impact of ginseng on easing opioid withdrawal. Ed says he doesn't claim to know how it works, only that he's seen results. It gives us a warm feeling when someone uses it for the first time and, and say, two or three weeks later gives you a good testimony saying that what a change it's made in their life and comfort and they're now able to sleep at night. Ed says he's happy to pass on what he's learned over decades of growing botanicals. He sees it as a way to earn a living from the forest while preserving it for future generations. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Nyday. So as we heard, there can be big financial benefits from investing in the health of our forests. Next, we'll head to a holler, yep, I said a holler, to find out how investing time in these plants can also benefit our mental health. In Kaiser, West Virginia, Andrea Lay has intimate knowledge of the microclimates and plants found deep in the mountains. The thing about spending time with plants in all seasons is that you recognize them at all their stages of development. So these little plants right here that are coming up, I know that these are jewelweed. 
once you start learning about plants, uh, it just snowballs. There's always new things to learn. It's just a lifelong learning process. My name's Andrea Lay, and uh, we call our home here Hidden Hollow Farm. We're way down in the holler. Uh, so we're in Mineral County, West Virginia, outside of Kaiser, West Virginia. So a holler is a low spot that's we have on our land, we have 75 acres, but it's mostly just hills and hollers. There's one main holler that goes through the middle. So it's just a hollow. It's like a low spot between ridges. And this spot where we're at right now is completely different environment than where our house is up on, the, on a hill, where the soil is just very thin. It's a lot of shale and the plants are different up there. Things bloom uh, it takes them longer to bloom, so it definitely is a little microclimate down here. And you can feel in the summertime, when we come down, you can feel the cool air as soon as you come down to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, well there's, you know, dozens and dozens, up to probably a hundred plants growing here. Um, and I would have to say, they all have value, whether it's for us or for the pollinators. This is a plant called wing stem that's coming up here. And it's kind of a slow grower, but by late summer, early fall, it'll be this high with lots of really pretty yellow flowers on it. And that's a great late season food source for the bees. So actually in this spot, there's quite a few, quite a few nice plants here. This is um, chickweed. This is a pretty common weedy plant. I like to put it in salads. It's edible and it's also medicinal. I put it in oil to make salves. Chickweed is very cooling, so you could just mash it up and apply it as a poultice. It's really a multi-purpose plant. What was taught to me about gathering plants is you always are very mindful when you're doing it. Um, not only does it help you know that you're definitely picking the plant that you think it is, but you're focusing in with that plant's energy. It's a mutual exchange of energy. So the native people would leave some sort of offering when they gather plants. Sometimes it would be cornmeal or tobacco. Tobacco is a holy plant. Um, and that a lot of my teachers did teach that as well. I had one teacher that would leave like a strand of her hair. She would like just pull out some hair and leave it. Um, and when you are gathering plants, if you find a big stand, Definitely you only take a small portion and you leave the grandmother plants, you leave the older plants out of respect. So when I'm gathering plants, when I'm making medicine, I am thinking about the plants. I thank the plants either verbally or just in my head. And I'm also thinking about the people that are going to benefit from this plant. So when I'm making a tincture or even a tea, I'm kind of trying to focus my energy on that. I saw something else. Okay, so this is the plant I've want to gather today to make um, some tincture and this is called cleavers it's a gallium species and it has little prickles on it you can kind of feel and cleavers is a nice uh, medicinal plant for moving the lymph any time of year if you have lymph stagnation and uh, it's just a really cool plant <laughs> we can't separate ourselves from nature I mean, we really can't. And when we do, that's when a lot of problems come in. I know a lot of kids that live in poverty. I work with, with them and families. And they just don't have either the time or the ability to get out in nature. They're inside all the time. They're on video games. Nothing wrong with video games. There has to be a balance, though. But they're, you know, they're finding that even a, an hour spent outside 
interacting with nature can help calm somebody. I know I feel better if I'm having a really rough day or if I've been really stressed out this week because of things going on in the news. If I just get outside for a little bit, go for a walk, listen to the birds, hear the water, see the butterflies, smell a nice minty plant, it just uplifts you. And it kind of brings you to the fact that, you know, this we're living on this planet. We're not isolated. We're all part of this. And nature is always going to be important for people if we're going to survive. That was herbalist Andrea Lay, who lives with her husband and their two daughters on Hidden Hollow Farm outside Kaiser, West Virginia. That story was produced by Leah Scarpelli and Michael Snyder as part of the Mountain Traditions Project. We've posted a link on our website where you can see photos and learn more about the project. It's at wvpublic.org. Up next, we'll travel underground to explore Appalachia's vast caves and learn about a mysterious lake that's now filling with water after being mostly dry for about 11 years. Learn more about the lake with a connection to the movie Dirty Dancing. That's all coming up after the break. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Today on Inside Appalachia, we've heard from several people who are cultivating the natural bounty that grows well in our forests. With this practice, they find solace and perhaps make some income. Appalachia is also home to many natural springs scattered throughout the hillsides. Not far from where I grew up in Wyoming County, in southern West Virginia, there's a spot along the highway where locals would fill jugs of water. I think that's really neat that fresh mountain water is available for free. Unfortunately, not all spring water is pristine. WVTF's Robbie Harris reports. In the mountains of southwestern Virginia, with its vertical landscapes and low population density, it's not always easy or even possible to get water to some homes. It could cost $50,000 or more to hook up to a sewer system, that is, if there is one nearby. People have been drinking from these springs for a long time. That's Virginia Tech bioengineering professor Leanne Kramidis. She says in many cases, even people with running water at home prefer getting it from these springs. Kramidis is considered one of the foremost experts on water quality and availability in Appalachia. You know, if you have a well and you have very high iron in your water, manganese, it may be discolored. Maybe if you've switched from well to a public system, you taste the chlorine and it tastes funny. So in all these cases, people say, eh, you know, the water coming out of my tap at home isn't palatable. This seems natural and it's pretty and it's coming out of a pretty place in the mountain. But all that beauty doesn't mean there's no harmful bacteria in the water. You can't see E. coli and you can't taste it. E. coli is naturally in the gut of every warm-blooded mammal and bird. So if you find E. coli, It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the kind of E. coli that's going to make you sick, but it's something that should be in the intestine, which means it came out 
of the intestine, which means that there's poop in the water. So I always joke with my students that, you know, even little kids know you don't drink poop. Her survey found the springs to be contaminated some of the time. 80% tested positive at least once, but there's no regular testing program in place, though some local health departments label the springs not for human consumption. But for people who've grown up with and come to rely on these springs, it's a cultural thing. People have been telling me they value these springs. That means that they should be there for them to use. We just have to figure out a way to lower the risk. Cremita says if a municipal drinking water facility had anywhere near that 80 percent level of E. coli contaminations, they'd shut the plant down and send out a boil water advisory. Cremita also teaches water and sanitation in developing countries. And we're always talking about being culturally sensitive and malleable to what a community wants. So not just delivering them what we think they should have, but what they'd actually want. And that's sometimes that then we forget, is it actually a guiding principle we should use in the United States as well? She'd like to see these springs protected with a point-of-use water treatment right there on the site to keep them free of dangerous bacteria. Because if they're valued by the community, I'd like them to still be available for use, but safe. At this point, we can't know if they're safe. Virginia's natural springs are considered environmental waters and not intended to be drinking water. So they're outside the regulation for water quality. But in many countries around the world, communal springs are common. And there's even a version of that in this country. I do know of some areas in Kentucky that have developed kind of water kiosks that become a place of gathering, a place where you can hold farmer's markets and kind of catch up with people. And so maybe that is something we'd like here. Maybe we need to dream beyond what we originally thought was only possible overseas. Appalachian Springs have long been a vital resource in this region that people think of as healthy and safe. So finding the investment and kind of the will to develop them, that's the challenge. In Blacksburg, I'm Robbie Harris. We live in a region that has long brought solace to people through the natural world, and much of what attracts folks this way is water. From whitewater rafting to touring natural springs, Appalachia's hollers are dotted with creeks and waterfalls. A good amount of water also runs just beneath their feet. That's because the region is home to a lot of karst. Karst is a landscape where rock and water intersect, creating features like sinkholes, sinking streams, and, as we'll hear in the next story, Appalachia's vast underground caves. Reporter Robbie Harris found a karst expert who guided her through some of the caves near her home in southwestern Virginia. In many rural areas of Virginia, natural springs supply lucky landowners with drinking water in seemingly endless supply. But karst protection specialist Will Orndorff says it's not that simple. People always have this attitude that springs are this magic gift to humankind that's just an open faucet to an infinite water supply, and that's just not the case. If climate change brings more frequent storms and hotter summers, as predicted in models for the region, he says, water resources are going to change. One of the things we anticipate as a result of climate change is that aquifer levels will be decreased. Seems counterintuitive that more rain would deplete aquifers, but because warmer temperatures would extend the growing season, plants will take up more water. That means less water reaching the underground karst. The net effect's gonna be less water makes it to the cave, 
ergo less water makes into the aquifer. So over time we expect the rivers and streams and wells that are supported by the infiltration of water into karst is probably going to be decreased as a result of climate change. Thanks to the karst formation, caves are abundant in Virginia. Here we are, we're actually in the bottom of a sinkhole. This particular sinkhole is formed by the collapse of a cave. And we're going to go into the cave in a minute. Orndorff explains that when you see a sinkhole, you can be pretty sure there's a cave below. Hey, just watch, there's a hole here. So you want to kind of keep your butt up there and your feet over here. If you don't want to slip down the hole. Definitely not. There we go. Wow, thanks for pointing that out. Sure. After a lot of crouching and shimmying over gray-green mud with rocks blocking our way, we find ourselves in a large underground space with streams flowing throughout the cave. When you shine a light, you see small pebbles shimmering in the shallow water like a granite countertop. The karst terrain is fragile and changeable, the limestone and dolomite having been eroded by water since at least the Ice Age, leaving holes and cutouts in the rock. Orndorff calls it the Swiss cheese. So Swiss cheese isn't just cheese and it's not just holes, right? It's the cheese with the holes. So that's what karst is. It's a landform top. Like a desert's not a mineral, a desert's not a rock, a desert is a landform. Uh, this room we're in right here, if you look at the wall in front of us, if, you, if we had a time machine and I was to be able to take you back here 10 years ago, you'd see about 600 little brown bats all in clusters up on the wall in front of you. Millions of bats in this country have died due to white nose syndrome. The bright spot of all that is that we don't have evidence that any of these bats have gone extinct yet. And here and there, we have populations that seem to be stable or increasing. But this cave has had nearly a 100% reduction in the number of bats. There's a meter on the cave wall to check for bat activity. It's required for the Mountain Valley natural gas pipeline that snakes through this area. Orndorff says the pipeline company has been careful to protect caves like this, in one case changing a proposed route over the Mount Tabor sinkhole area. They're very cooperative. When there was a hole in the pipeline trench that was losing water into the ground, I didn't find out about that because I went out there. I found out about it because it was reported to me by people working for MVP. Orndorff worries that the current halt to pipeline construction is not helping water quality because everything downstream will be affected by what happens above. I mean, it gets kind of philosophical, yes. but, but I, I think from the perspective of how we interact with the natural landscape, my opinion is minimal perturbation of the natural landscape should be the goal. If we were to lose our light down here in this cave, we wouldn't be able to see our hands in front of our face. I don't think I've ever seen anything this dark. But with the help of a seasoned guide who knows what he's doing, we easily make it back up to find a pristine winter white landscape as the sun begins to set. In Montgomery County, I'm Robbie Harris. Robbie Harris is a reporter based in Blacksburg, Virginia. That story originally aired back in February on WVTF. The karst expert we just heard, Will Orndorff, mentioned that workers building the Mountain Valley Pipeline notified him of leaking water in one cave. The MVP is a 300-mile pipeline being built to transport natural gas from northern West Virginia to Virginia. The project cuts through karst mountaintops and the Appalachian Trail. Hey, while we're talking about water that flows underground, did you know there's a lake in Appalachia that mysteriously emptied about 11 years ago? Geologists are still puzzled about it. The lake was where one of the most iconic scenes of motion pictures was shot. You might remember the lift on Dirty Dancing. (laughs) 
You know, the best place to practice lifts is in the water. Just bend your knees. And go. Good. Good. Now hold the position. Hold it. Good. Don't break. Don't break. There's a resort in southwestern Virginia where Dirty Dancing was filmed. It's called Mountain Lake Lodge. The lake mysteriously disappeared around 2008. Here's Dr. Ross Irwin with the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum talking about the unique qualities of the lake in a video posted to YouTube a few years ago. Dynamic. One of the things that makes Mountain Lake a unique natural feature, and in fact one of the things that makes it possible, is this natural cycle of rising and falling water levels. During the low periods, People say, where's the lake? The lake is, in a sense, healing itself because it is able to erode that sediment off the basin floor, take it out through the subsurface plumbing system, and maintain this unique natural basin here in the southern Appalachian Mountains. That cycle is very important. That It's not broken, in a sense. It's uh, doing what it's supposed to do. That's something to think about. Well, it made me think, anyway. Maybe, as we go through new challenges in this world... Maybe there are times we're not really broken. We're just learning to heal ourselves. You can find a full video of the phenomenon of Mountain Lake in southwest Virginia on our website at wvpublic.org. The time of my life No, I never felt this way before never felt Yes, I swear It's the truth And I hope For our final story, we'll take an aerial view of our wild side to learn from some of the wild animals here in Appalachia. We have lots of them, including birds of prey. A handful of folks here love to partner with these birds to hunt. This sport dates back to 5000 B.C. in Mongolia. Some historians say people may have been bonding and partnering with birds of prey even longer than that. But not just anybody can become a falconer. Master falconer Mick Brown has been practicing falconry for 18 years in Ohio and all over the U.S. He says getting licensed can be pretty intense. First thing you have to do is take a test. It's a very hard test. I have, I have an insurance license, investment license, uh, real estate license. The hardest test I ever took is a falconry test, to be honest with you. It's hard. It's on, uh, it's on uh, uh, all about the, the care of the raptor. Uh, Everything they go through, the diseases, medicines, and everything. It's an extensive process because state biologists want to ensure that people and wild animals are both protected. Brown has a hawk named Purdy. So if I go out of town, I can't have you feed my bird. I have to have a licensed falconer feed my bird. There's not that many, so I have to either take it to a falconer's house and have him feed him or have him come to my house and feed him. So it's, it's very difficult. So to become a falconer, you have to learn a lot about the science and health of birds. It also requires a good deal of money. It's very expensive to get into. I'd say with your pens and your equipment and everything you're getting into, you probably got between six and ten grand in that just to get in, just to get into that. And then uh, the food. The food's what's expensive. Um, you, can, you can drop five, six, seven hundred bucks on a shipment of food with, without any problems. And then... Like what happened to me a couple years ago, uh, my, my freezer died, and I didn't know it. Just after I got all, all of it filled up, and it died, and I lost all that food. 
So I had to buy a new freezer and get new food. We've posted a video of Mick Brown and his hawk Purdy. It's part of the Edible Mountain series from West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which we heard about at the beginning of our episode. Find it at wvpublic.org. Here in West Virginia, 31 people have falconry licenses. Roxy Todd spoke with one of them, 20-year-old Colin Waybright, who lives in Randolph County. To be a falconer, you have to love birds. Like, really love birds. You can tell by the way Colin Waybright talks about birds with such admiration and affection that he fits the bill. The way I got started is I went to a hunting fishing day celebration at Stonewall Resort. I saw this raptor display and I thought it was just amazing. Colin became a falconry apprentice when he was 14 years old. And get this, first thing you need to do when you become a falconer is trap your own young bird in the wild. So actually the typical way that falconry works is you trap a young bird in juvenile plumage and train it. So in the middle of January, six years ago, Colin trekked out in the snow to try to catch a young red-tailed hawk. He remembers sub-zero temperatures and leaving a rabbit as bait in a Swedish goshawk trap. He went to check the trap the next day. I had my mom come down with me and we went down and it was dark and the trap was shut. We we're like, oh, what, what, what in the world did I catch? You know, because you never know what you're going to catch. You could catch an owl, a hawk, something like that. Well, we drove up and the first, this was the first bird I had caught and it was a juvenile red-tailed hawk. Out of all the birds that I could have caught for the first time in that trap, it was what I was after. And that is just amazing to me to this day. He named that red-tailed hawk Ace. He loved that bird. Colin spent like all his time training Ace and hunting with Ace. His mom says they were nearly inseparable. Falconry requires forming a strong bond with a bird of prey. Hawks aren't motivated to hunt on command. They hunt for the same reason a hawk does in the wild, because they're hungry. That means a falconer has to keep close tabs on their bird's weight, making sure they don't get overfed, but also stay healthy. Colin taught Ace calls so they could communicate in the woods. Here's a recent hunt Colin did with another bird. That's the typical sound a falconer makes to signal to their hawk that an animal they're hunting is getting away. In this case, a gray squirrel. The hawk knows through training to watch their human, well, like a hawk, to gauge where the squirrel is. Colin will walk through fields and forest, and the bird follows, flying from treetop to treetop, scanning for prey. They hunt together like this, but the birds really do most of the work. Colin usually lets his hawks eat the prey after they kill it. He got very attached to his first bird ace. They hunted together like this, just the two of them. In the wild, half of hawks die in their first year. If they survive past that, hawks typically live another nine or so years. But if a falconer is feeding them, they can live for up to three decades. Colin's hawk, Ace, wasn't so lucky. Ace ended up passing away in the second season I flew him. Uh, he was fine one day, doing some training. Then the next day he was acting a little bit slow. Next day there was clearly something wrong. Called the Raptor Center. 
The West Virginia Raptor Rehabilitation Center in Fairmont advised Colin, trying to determine what was wrong with Ace. And the next day he had passed away. So that's, that's one of the hardest things ever. Colin says the veterinarians told him Ace probably died from a genetic disease. Colin says losing Ace like that so suddenly was the toughest thing he's faced as a falconer. Since then, he's trained eight birds of prey. Like most falconers, he loves watching the birds hunt. But even more than that, he just loves watching them fly. At times, it's like he vicariously gets to fly himself. I definitely have wished quite a few times that I could fly. I mean, you see the hawks and you see all the other birds doing it as well, and they all have different flight styles. And it's amazing, but the flight style that's probably the most just fun to watch is the vultures. They're just so effortless. They can just soar on thermals. And whenever it gets a little windy, they just kind of tuck their wings back a little bit and go into it. And they, it's just amazing to watch them. Yeah, there's many times I could be, I wish I could be up there just flying around. Be really cool. Another one of Colin's favorite parts of the work is giving presentations to kids. I ask them questions as I'm talking to them, and their reactions to the questions are just priceless. I'll look at them, the group, and ask, you know, how much do you guys think this bird weighs? And I'll get guesses from 20 to 100 pounds. It's it's just funny whenever you say, well, no, this guy only weighs about two to three pounds, and then the, the jaws drop, you know. Most of these public talks have been put on hold during the pandemic, but Colin says he does offer informal demonstrations at his family's farm, where his mother also manages a bed and breakfast. And one day, he says, if someone approaches him with the right passion for learning falconry, he'd consider taking them on as an apprentice. For Inside Appalachia... I'm Roxy Todd. Growing up, I didn't really have the chance to learn much about the plants that grow through the forests, even though I pretty much grew up in a forest. Mom was allergic to poison ivy, so she'd frequently show me leaves of three, let it be. And I admit, even today, sometimes the humidity, the mosquitoes and ticks, and even bees turn me off. And I don't get outside and explore as much as I probably should. But there are people who know plants like they're, like they're old friends, complete with stories and histories and how they can help us in times of need. I can't help but to think about all the challenges we might overcome if we knew our natural world a little better and used it responsibly. A few quick words of warning before I leave you. If you're feeling inspired by any of the stories in today's show and now you want to embrace your wild side, please remember. Okay, we'll start with falconry. So if you're interested, it's the oldest and some say purest form of hunting, but it's also probably the most regulated field sport in the U.S. And we should also note that falconry is not pet keeping. It's a blood sport. And a word about foraging. If you're new and want to try your hand at it, please find a mentor to teach you first. And make sure you have a field guide because there are some things you just don't want to tangle with. So do your research before you eat anything you find. Till next time, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. Going across the i
We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from WVTF Radio IQ and the Mountains Tradition Podcast, which is funded by the Community Trust Foundation. Special thanks to the West Virginia Folklife Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Our music this week was also provided by Blue Dot Session, Anna and Elizabeth, Marisa Anderson, Dinosaur Burps, Jerry Garcia, and David Grisman. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Glennis Board edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at In Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jessica Lilly. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.